part three of part third of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Estelle Jobson. Trilby by Georges du Maurier. Part third, part three. One fine Sunday afternoon, little Billy found himself studying life and character in that most delightful and festive scene, La Fête de Saint-Claude, and met Dodo and Zuzu there, who hailed him with delight, saying, Nous allons joliment jubiler, nom d'un pipe, and insisted on his joining in their amusements and paying for them, round about swings, the giant, the dwarf, the strong man, the fat woman, to whom they made love, and were taken too seriously and turned out the menagerie of wild beasts whom they teased and aggravated till the police had to interfere. Also of fresco dancers, where their can-can step was of the wildest and most unbridled character, till a sous-officier or a gendarme came in sight, and then they danced quite mincingly and demurely, or maître d'école, as they called it, to the huge delight of an immense and ever-increasing crowd, and the disgust of all truly respectable men. They also insisted on little Billy's walking between them, arm in arm, and talking to them in English whenever they saw, coming towards them, a respectable English family with daughters. It was the dragoon's delight to get himself stared at by fair daughters of Albion for speaking as good English as themselves, a rare accomplishment in a French trooper, and Zuzu's happiness to be thought English too, though the only English he knew was the phrase, I will not, I will not, which he had picked up in the Crimea, and repeated over and over again when he came within earshot of a pretty english girl little billy was not happy in these circumstances he was no snob but he was a respectably brought-up young briton of the higher middle class and it was not quite pleasant for him to be seen by fair country women of his own walking arm in arm on a sunday afternoon with a couple of french private soldiers and uncommonly rowdy ones at that Later they came back to Paris together on the top of an omnibus, among a very proletarian crowd, and there the two facetious warriors immediately made themselves pleasant all round, and became very popular, especially with the women and children, but not, I regret to say, through the propriety, refinement and discretion of their behaviour. Little Billy resolved that he would not go a-pleasuring with them any more. However, they stuck to him through thick and thin, and insisted on escorting him all the way back to the Quartier Latin by the Pont de la Concorde and the Rue de Lille in the Faubourg Saint-Germain. Little Billy loved the Faubourg Saint-Germain, especially the Rue de Lille. He was fond of gazing at the magnificent old mansions, the hotels of the old French noblesse, or rather the outside walls thereof, the grand sculptured portals with the armorial bearings and the splendid old historic names above them, Hotel de this, Hotel de that, Rouen Chabot, Montmorency, La Rochefoucauld-Liancourt, La Tour d'Auvergne. He would forget himself in romantic dreams of past and forgotten French chivalry which these glorious names called up, for he knew a little of French history, loving to read Froissart and Saint-Simon and the genial Brantome. Halting opposite one of the finest and oldest of all these gateways, his especial favourite, labelled Hôtel de la Rochemarte, in letters of faded gold over a ducal coronet, and a huge escutcheon of stone, he began to descant upon its architectural beauties and noble proportions to Le Zouzou. Parbleu, said Le Zouzou, 
connu farceur. Why, I was born there on the 6th of March, 1834, at 5.30 in the morning. A lucky day for France, eh? Born there? What do you mean? In the porter's lodge? At this juncture, the two great gates rolled back. A liveried Suisse appeared, and an open carriage and a pair came out, and in it were two elderly ladies and a younger one. To little Billy's indignation, the two incorrigible warriors made the military salute, and the three ladies bowed stiffly and gravely. And then, to little Billy's horror this time, one of them happened to look back, and Zuzu actually kissed his hand to her. Do you know that lady? asked little Billy very sternly. Parbleu, si je la connais. Why, it's my mother. Isn't she nice? She's rather cross with me just now. Your mother? Why, what do you mean? What on earth would your mother be doing in that big carriage and at that big house? Parbleu, farceur, she lives there. Lives there? Why, who and what is she, your mother? The Duchesse de la Roche-Martel, parbleu. And that's my sister, and that's my aunt. Princesse de Chevogne, Baframont. She's the patron of that chic equipage. She's a millionaire, my aunt Chevogne. Well, I never... What's your name, then? Oh, my name? Hang it, let me see. Well, Gontran, Xavier, François, Marie, Joseph, Damory, de Brissac, de Roncevaux, de la Roche-Martel, Boisségur, at your service. Quite correct, said Dodeur, l'enfant dit vrai. Well, I never. And what's your name, Dodeur? Oh, I am only a humble individual, and answer to the one-horse name of Theodore Rigolo de la Farce. But Zuzu's an awful swell, you know. His brother's the Duke. Little Billy was no snob, but he was a respectably brought-up young Briton of the higher middle class, and these revelations, which he could not but believe, astounded him so that he could hardly speak. Much as he flattered himself that he scorned the bloated aristocracy, titles are titles even French titles, and when it comes to dukes and princesses who live in houses like the Hôtel de la Roche-Martel, it's enough to take a respectably brought-up young Briton's breath away. When he saw Taffy that evening, he exclaimed, I say, Zuzu's mother's a duchess. Yes, the Duchesse de la Roche-Martel, Boisségur. You never told me. You never asked me. It's one of the greatest names in France. They're very poor, I believe. Poor? You should see the house they live in. I've been there to dinner, and the dinner wasn't very good. They let a great part of it, and live mostly in the country. The Duke is Zuzu's brother, very unlike Zuzu. He's consumptive and unmarried, and the most respectable man in Paris. Zuzu will be the Duke some day. And Dodeur, he's a swell too, I suppose. He says he's de something or other. Yes, rigolo de la farce. I've no doubt he descends from the Crusaders, too. His name seems to favour it, anyhow, and such lots of them do in this country. His mother was English and bore the worthy name of Brown. He was at school in England, that's why he speaks English so well, and behaves so badly, perhaps. He's got a very beautiful sister married to a man in the 60th Rifles, Jack Reeve, a son of Lord Reevely's. A selfish sort of chap. I don't suppose he gets on very well with his brother-in-law. Poor Dodor. His sister's about the only living thing he cares for, except Zuzu. 
I wonder if the bland and genial Monsieur Theodore, notre Monsieur Theodore, now junior partner in the great haberdashery firm of Passeville et Rigolo, on the boulevard des Capucines, and a pillar of the English chapel in the Rue Marbeuf, is very hard on his employees and his employees if they are a little late at their counters on a Monday morning. I wonder if that stuck-up, stingy, stodgy, communard-shooting, church-going, time-serving, place-hunting, pious-eyed, pompous old prig, martinet and philistine, Monsieur le Maréchal Duc de la Roche-Martel-Boisségur, ever tells Madame la Maréchale Duchesse, nay, Hanks of Chicago, how once upon a time Dodeur and he... We will tell no tales out of school. The present scribe is no snob. He is a respectably brought-up old Briton of the higher middle class. At least he flatters himself so. And he writes for just such old Philistines as himself, who date from a time when titles were not thought so cheap as today. Alas, all reverence for all that is high and time-honoured and beautiful seems at a discount. So he has kept his blackguard ducal zouave for the bouquet of this little show, the final bonne bouche in his bohemian menu, that he may make it palatable to those who only look upon the good old quartier latin, now no more to speak of as a very low common vulgar quarter indeed, deservedly swept away, where misters the students, shocking bounders and cads, had nothing better to do day and night, then mount up to a horrid place called the thatched house, La Chaumière, pour y danser le concon ou le Robert Macaire, toujours, 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 la nuit comme le jour, et youp, 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 tra-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. Christmas was drawing near. There were days when the whole quartier latin would veil its iniquities under fogs almost worthy of the Thames Valley between London Bridge and Westminster, and out of the studio window the prospect was a dreary, blank. No morgue, no towers of Notre Dame, not even the chimney pots over the way, not even the little medieval toy turret at the corner of the Rue Vieille des Trois Mauvais Ladres, little Billy's delight. The stove had to be crammed till its sides grew a dull deep red before one's fingers could hold a brush or squeeze a bladder. One had to box or fence at nine in the morning that one might recover from the cold bath and get warm for the rest of the day. Taffy and the laird grew pensive and dreamy, childlike and bland, and when they talked it was generally about Christmas at home in Merry England, and the distant land of cakes, and how good it was to be there at such a time, hunting, shooting, curling, an endless carouse. It was ho for the jolly west riding, and hey for the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee, till they grew quite homesick and wanted to start by the very next train. They didn't do anything so foolish. They wrote over to friends in London for the biggest turkey, the biggest plum pudding that could be got for love or money, with mince pies and holly and mistletoe, and sturdy, short, thick English sausages, half a Stilton cheese, and a sirloin of beef, two sirloins, in case one should not be enough. For they meant to have a Homeric feast in the studio on Christmas Day, Taffy, the laird, and little Billy and invite all the delightful chums I have been trying to describe, and that is just why I try to describe them. Durien, Vincent, Antony, Lorimer, Carnegie, Petroli Coconose, Zuzu, and Dodor. The cooking and waiting should be done by Trilby, her friend Angèle Boisse, Monsieur et Madame Vinard, and such little Vinards as could be trusted with glass and crockery and mince pies, 
and if that was not enough, they would also cook themselves and wait upon each other. When dinner should be over, supper was to follow with scarcely any interval to speak of, and to partake of this other guests should be bidden, Svengali and Gecko, and perhaps one or two more, no ladies. For, as the unsusceptible laird expressed it, in the language of a ghillie he had once met at a servant's dance in a highland country house, them women spires the ball. Elaborate cards of invitation were sent out, in the designing and ornamentation of which the laird and Taffy exhausted all their fancy. Little Billy had no time. Wines and spirits and English beers were procured at great cost from M. E. de Levagne's in the Rue Saint-Honoré, and liqueurs of every description, Chartreuse, Corasseur, Ratafia de Cassis, and Anisette. No expense was spared. Also truffled galantines of turkey, tongues, hams, rillettes de Tours, pâté de foie gras, fromage d'Italie, which has nothing to do with cheese, saucisson d'Arles et de Lyon, with and without garlic, cold jellies, peppery and salt, everything that French charcutiers and their wives can make out of French pigs, or any other animal, whatever, beast, bird or fowl, even cats and rats, for the supper, and sweet jellies and cakes, and sweetmeats and confections of all kinds, from the famous pastry cook at the corner of the Rue Castiglione. Mouths went watering all day long in joyful anticipation. They water somewhat sadly now at the mere remembrance of these delicious things, the mere immediate sight or scent of which, in these degenerate latter days, would no longer avail to promote any such delectable secretion. Ella, aim, ach, ve, ay, di me, oh, in point of fact, alas, that is the very exclamation I wanted. Christmas Eve came round. The pieces of resistance and plum pudding and mince pies had not yet arrived from London, but there was plenty of time. Les Trois Angliches dined at Le Père Trance, as usual, and played billiards and dominoes at the Café du Luxembourg, and possessed their souls in patience till it was time to go and hear the midnight mass at the Madeleine, where Rucoli, the great baritone of the Opéra Comique, was retained to sing Adam's famous Noël. The whole quartier seemed alive with the Réveillon. It was a clear, frosty night, with a splendid moon just past the full, and most exhilarating was the walk along the quays on the Rive Gauche, over the Pont de la Concorde, and across the Place thereof, and up the thronged Rue de la Madeleine, to the massive Parthenaic place of worship that always has such a pagan worldly look of smug and prosperous modernity. They struggled manfully, and found standing a kneeling room among that fervent crowd, and heard the impressive service with mixed feelings, as became true Britons of very advanced liberal and religious opinions, not with the unmixed contempt of the proper British Orthodox, who were there in full force, one may be sure. But their susceptible hearts soon melted at the beautiful music, and in mere sensuous attendrissement they were quickly in unison with all the rest. For as the clock struck twelve, out pealed the organ, and up rose the finest voice in France. Minuit, chrétien, c'est l'heure solennelle, où l'homme Dieu descendit parmi nous. And a wave of religious emotion rolled over little Billy and submerged him, swept him off his little legs, swept him out of his little self, drowned him in a great seething surge of love, love of his kind, love of love, 
love of life, love of death, love of all that is and ever was and ever will be. A very large order indeed, even for little Billy. And it seemed to him that he stretched out his arms for love to one figure especially beloved, beyond all the rest, one figure erect on high with arms outstretched to him, in more than common fellowship of need, not the sorrowful figure crowned with thorns, for it was in the likeness of a woman, but never that of the virgin mother of our Lord. It was Trilby, 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 a poor fallen sinner and waif, all but lost amid the scum of the most corrupt city on earth. Trilby weak and mortal like himself, and in woeful want of pardon, and in her grey dove-like eyes he saw the shining of so great a love that he was abashed, for well he knew that all that love was his, and would be his for ever, come what would or could. Peuple debout, chante ta délivrance, Noël, Noël, voici le Rédempteur. So sang and rang and pealed and echoed the big, deep, metallic baritone bass, above the organ, above the incense, above everything else in the world, till the very universe seemed to shake with the rolling thunder of that great message of love and forgiveness. Thus at least felt little Billy, whose way it was to magnify and exaggerate all things under the subtle stimulus of sound, and the singing human voice had especially strange power to penetrate into his inmost depths, even the voice of man. And what voice, but the deepest and gravest and grandest there is, can give wordy utterance to such a message as that, the epitome, the abstract, the very essence of all collective humanity's wisdom, at its best. Little Billy reached the Hôtel Corneille that night in a very exalted frame of mind indeed, the loftiest, lowliest mood of all. Now see what sport we are of trivial, basic, noble, earthly things. Sitting on the doorstep and smoking two cigars at once, he found Ribot, one of his fellow lodgers, whose room was just under his own. Ribot was so tipsy that he could not ring. But he could still sing, and did so at the top of his voice. It was not the Noel of Adam that he sang. He had not spent his réveillon in any church. With the help of a sleepy waiter, little Billy got the bacchanalian into his room, and lit his candle for him, and, disengaging himself from his maudlin embraces, left him to wallow in solitude. As he lay awake in his bed, trying to recall the deep and high emotions of the evening, he heard the tipsy hog below tumbling about his room and still trying to sing his senseless ditty. Allons, j'y sais, rougis mon verre, du jus divin dans mon cœur est toujours jaloux, et puis à table, bacant aimable, enivrons-nous, les glouglous sont des rendez-vous. Then the song ceased for a while, and soon there were other sounds, as on a channel steamer, glouglou indeed. Then the fear rose in little Billy's mind, lest the drunken beast should set fire to his bedroom curtains. All heavenly visions were chased away for the night. Our hero, half-crazed with fear, disgust and irritation, lay wide awake, his nostrils on the watch for the smell of burning chintz or muslin, and wondered how an educated man, for Ribot was a law student, could ever make such a filthy beast of himself as that. It was a scandal, a disgrace. It was not to be borne. There should be no forgiveness for such as Ribot, not even on Christmas Day. He would complain to Madame Paul, the patron. He would have Ribot turned out into the street. He would leave the hotel himself the very next morning. At last he fell asleep, thinking of all he would do 
Thus, ridiculously and ignominiously for little Billy, ended the réveillon. Next morning he complained to Madame Paul, and though he did not give her warning nor even insist on the expulsion of Ribot, who, as he heard with a hard heart, was bien malade ce matin, he expressed himself very severely on the conduct of that gentleman, and on the dangers from fire that might arise from a tipsy man being trusted alone in a small bedroom with chintz curtains and a lighted candle. If it hadn't been for himself, he told her, Ribot would have slept on the doorstep, and serve him right. He was really grand in his virtuous indignation, in spite of his imperfect French, and Madame Paul was deeply contrite for her peccant lodger, and profuse in her apologies, and little Billy began his twenty-first Christmas day, like a Pharisee, thanking his star that he was not as Ribot. End of part third Recording by Estelle Jobson, Rome, Italy.